There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Them's the breaks. Boris Johnson resigns as leader of the British Conservative Party but plans to hang on to his role as Prime Minister until a successor is chosen. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. Meanwhile, back home, Taoiseach Michael Martin alluded to a sense of optimism towards the future of Anglo-Irish relations. I, I do get a sense that there's an opportunity for people to, to go back to... Uh, the, the, the fundamentals of how politics is done. Is there potential unrest in Fianna Fáil? Almost 30 backbenchers meet to discuss the party's future. Sinn Féin looks set to table a motion of no confidence in the government next week, following the loss of the coalition's dull majority last night. And later, we look at some of the other big stories you might have missed this week in our Week in Review. Do join the conversation on Twitter with our hashtag. It's tonight, VMTV. Following an extraordinary 48 hours in British politics that saw the hemorrhaging of support within his own Tory party, Boris Johnson took to the podium outside number 10 Downing Street at lunchtime today and announced his resignation, saying he will step down when a new leader is found. Let's have a look at the speech that marked the beginning of the end, we think, of his turbulent tenure as Prime Minister. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own laws in Parliament, getting us all through the pandemic, delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, the fastest exit from lockdown, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. I know that there will be many people who are relieved, and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Well, it was a speech that no doubt will be the subject of countless articles, columns and think pieces for a long time to come. With me to discuss this and more is journalist Michael O'Regan, journalist Ian O'Doherty, Minister of State in the Department of Finance, Sean Fleming, 
Sinn Féin TD Kathleen Funchian and Ireland editor with the Irish Independent Fiannán Sheehan. But first, a little earlier, I spoke to Caroline Slowcock, the former advisor to Margaret Thatcher and the first female private secretary in Downing Street. And I began by asking her if she saw parallels between the resignation of Thatcher and Boris Johnson. Definitely, though uh, it has to be said they were very different personalities and um, you know, it was all taking place against a very different backdrop. You know, Thatcher was in power for 11 and a half years, Boris, uh, for, Boris Johnson for a couple of years. Uh, but yes, um, huge similarities in, in the process, in the sense that people uh, who perhaps had, you know, both of them, enormous self-belief and uh, a big mandate, arguably, from uh, the elections that they'd won, um, and really wanted to, as, as Thatcher put it, go on and on, um, you know, were forced uh, really to go into reverse and, um, you know, brought down by their uh, own party. And what really was very similar was that the night before Boris Johnson's resignation and the night before Margaret Thatcher's resignation, it was the cabinet ministers who one by one came to both of them and told them that uh, although they might support them personally, that they just had lost the confidence of the party. So yes, I do see similarities, but I think Boris Johnson's um, resignation was hugely more dramatic, you know, because actually the only way that he was prepared to listen to his ministers was if they resigned en masse, which is pretty much what happened. Yeah, and it's and, funny, um, Caroline, listening to his speech today, he very much seemed to blame the Conservative you know, cabinet ministers and MPs. He talked about this idea of a herd mentality as if you know, one got an idea and suddenly they all ran with it. What did you make of his resignation speech in terms of the tone and the language that he used and how was it received? I thought it was an extraordinary speech uh, and I think generally it's not been well received. It, there was no, I mean, here's a prime minister who's not been brought down on policy, but because of his own behaviour. And there was no contrition, no recognition that he brought this on himself. It was simply that he'd been, um, you know, ex the way he portrayed it was that he'd experienced some sort of midterm blues. He'd uh, had a sledging in the press, criticisms of his family and his, his own behaviour. And, you know, the, the Conservative uh, Tory MPs, they just sort of bowed to it like a herd. Uh, so in this narrative that he spun, he was a, you know, he was the hero and the rest of us were sort of, um, you know, had lost the plot. And uh, I think people actually are quite angry about it, a bit worried about it, because I think the other thing about the speech is that he's very sort of strongly maintaining that he personally had a mandate almost a presidential mandate and that he wanted to go on and he had been persuaded by people perhaps who had less nerve than him. Uh, and, you know, there's just always, I think, with him, he's a natural rule breaker, the worry that, uh, you know, he still hasn't really given up. Well, I was going to ask uh, you actually you know, about that, given the fact that he doesn't seem to be completely, you know, reconciled with the reasons behind uh, his resignation. Uh, should he be allowed to continue, do you think, as Prime Minister? Would you be concerned about that? I think it's, uh, you know, it, it is very concerning because he's been found to be unfit 
uh, not just you know telling lies, um, but also not competent and not serious. And and these are the words of his own ministers. And there have been roughly 50 resignation letters, which have laid his weaknesses you know, horribly bare to the rest of the public. And yet, between now and potentially October, he will still be in charge. And it's not just. Uh, you know, he may perhaps not be able to introduce new policies, but he's pursuing policies already, which are arguably breaking international law, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And um, also, you know, I know from working from prime for prime ministers that um, events happen, you know, wars, invasions, problems with the pound, strikes. You know, there are all sorts of things that could happen. And here is a man in charge that, that not even his own party trust. Uh, Caroline Slowcock speaking to me a little earlier. Uh, Fiona, I'm just conscious that I was sitting here in this studio last night and we were talking about, you know, Boris Johnson digging in and that he was going to fight on. He was, you know, sacking ministers, replacing ministers right, left and centre. What happened between sort of 11 o'clock last night and 9 o'clock this morning? Was it the 1922 committee... Did they put it to him that they were going to get him out next week yeah, if and he the, didn't go? The, the continual resignations this morning, the, the flow, the, the herd kept going uh, towards the cliff. And also seeing that there was going to be emotional confidence coming down the track, this would strike one as, as graceful from a gentleman who is as graceless as possible. This is the most graceful way to, to exit in that he, he gets to actually make his own resignation statement rather than being chucked out the door by, by means of a of a uh, emotional conference. If you're looking at it, effectively 40% were, were against him in the previous vote. If you're taking it that the people who've resigned the last 48 hours had now flipped, that was heading towards 60, 65% of his party against him. So the, the position was untenable in that regard. But it was an extraordinary standoff, wasn't it, between sort of loyal, even at times, cabinet ministers and Boris Johnson. You know, it wasn't that long ago, in fact, only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it, that he was eyeing up potentially a third term? Yeah, and, and you'd have to <clears> wonder about so many of these people as well who raced for the exit door in the last 48 hours, you know, what was it about his behaviour in the previous six months that made you want, made you believe he was uh, fit for office? Uh, so they, they clung on, clung on, until they, they, they finally saw from their own perspective that this was, was no longer a, a, a plausible position uh, to be in. I mean, we, you know, we, we, it's nice to sneer about it. Unfortunately, we've seen events like this rather similarly in our own country in the, in the past, go back 30 years, and, and the, the departure of Charlie High, yep. slightly sim some similarities in terms of there was a, a trickle of events, and then there was just one that, that toppled them over the edge. A bunch of ministers resigning and leaving, you know, barely enough people to hold to hold uh, office together. Mm -hmm. That happened here just over a decade ago uh, as well. But it just seemed that all of these events just, just came together, mm -hmm. and, you know, a shambolic tenure in office ends in a shambles. And it hasn't, you know, ended well, just yet. We'll come to that. Ian, I'm just wondering, what did you sort of make of his speech on the plinth, given the fact that, as Caroline said, you know, it was his behaviour in the end that, that appears to have brought him down? Well, <clears throat> the moment we all knew the jig was up was in the mail yesterday, which had been a big supporter of Johnson. Um, and their headline was, The Greased Piglet is on the butcher's block. 
right? So that's even, that's his main supporting newspaper. And that's how they're referring to the Grease Piglet is the old nickname that people had for him. Because he got out of so many jams that he'd actually put himself into. And yeah, I was uh, looking back today, Partygate, Patterson Affair, I might be on my own in the corner on this one, but I don't think he should have gone. Why? Um, he got a record break in ADC majority. Um, he absolutely smashed Jeremy Corbyn out of it, but for which we should all be really, really grateful. Um, he also, what people tend to forget as well, is that the UK had the best vaccine rollout because they weren't suffering under the EU restrictions. And um, should be forgiven all else. And no, no, but, no, but these are important things. And also, as well, is that I mean, you know, the only people outside England, uh, outside certain Tory heartlands, who will be disappointed about this, about his departure, is actually even the Ukraine. I mean, Johnson actually took a very good lead on the Ukraine. So look, we all like all right, we, we all we, we all like slagging off Billy Bunter, right? Because he's a bit of a caricature and all that kind of stuff. But it would be very, very foolish of us to actually ignore the very genuinely good work that he has done as well. OK, Michael, should he have stayed? He should never have been in there in the first place. I mean, he, he <laughs> should, I disagree with Ian. He should have never, ever been Prime Minister. He should never have been a journalist. He should never have been an MP. Uh, you know, what's his legacy? Uh, a questionable taste and expensive wallpaper with some dodgy funding. I mean, uh, he lied to Parliament. Uh, he lied to pretty well everyone. But the fact that he lied to Parliament, the fact that he lied, blatantly lied to the House of Commons, and yet he had ministers... over party gates. Uh, uh, over party gate, absolutely, over party gate, that there was no breaking of the COVID rules. And yet a succession of ministers making well, idiots Michael, of themselves. they all lied. Keir Starmer, Angela Reynolds, they all lied. Well, Keir Starmer is under investigation. Let's yeah. see what happens. Uh, uh, but and Keir Starmer said he will go. Yeah, and he yeah, that was a stupid thing for and him the to say. Okay. He said he will go. <laughs> Corbyn would never have done that. <laughs> and that's interesting too, I suppose, in, in his in his you know his speech today. That speech, them's the breaks. Like yeah. I couldn't help but think back to you know Theresa May and the sort of emotion that she felt, and even David Cameron, you know, coming out and the ownership that he took. You know, I've reflected on this. It's been a tough decision, but you know, it's time for me to go. I can't lead the country through Brexit. There was none of that today, was there? There was none of that. Even Thatcher went with a certain dignity. Uh, the BBC4, coincidentally, have been running that series on Thatcher and last night they had the succession of ministers going into her eventually and saying, look, the game is up. And she went with some <clears> dignity <throat> and showed, I think, quite genuine emotion. Uh, but his, his was a self-serving speech. The other thing about his victory in the, general, in the general election was he was against an absolutely hopeless Labour leader in, in Jeremy Corbyn. OK. Uh, a bit like Mrs Thatcher and Michael Foote back in the 1980s. He, there wasn't Hope, any real competition up There was no him. competition. OK, I just want to have a look at the reaction back home from Taoiseach Michael Martin and Sinn Féin mm -hmm. leader uh, Mary Lee MacDonald. There were many Conservatives, on the other hand, who really were very dismayed at, at the unilateralism and particularly at the decision to bring in legislation to... Um, unilaterally uh, override the, the agreement that, that the uh, Westminster Parliament had actually um, ratified. Uh, I, I do get a sense that there's an opportunity for people to, to go back to uh, the, the, the fundamentals of how politics is done. Boris Johnson's interactions with Ireland have been wholly negative. It's been one disaster after the other, the undermining of the Good Friday Agreement, threats to break international law, austerity delivered to people in, in the north of the country. 
So uh, whoever succeeds Boris Johnson needs to change tack. It needs to respect international law and needs to understand without a shadow of a doubt that Ireland will not be the collateral damage for Brexit or for the power games uh, within the Tory party or indeed within number 10 itself. Uh, Sean Fleming, did the government breathe a big sigh of relief this morning? Well, it's a good opportunity for Ireland um, and hopefully we'll be able to reset our relationships with the British government. We've always worked well with him since the Good Friday Agreement and in the run-up to that. And he jettisoned that by his unilateral approach. And um, he showed internationally that he didn't respect agreements that he himself signed up to. So that was a real problem for the EU, a problem for Ireland. And I think the good thing about it now is that's behind us. And let's just hope, let's just hope whoever comes next is a more reasonable person in that regard and doesn't take these unilateral actions. Do you think he was fit for office? Well, the, the, you know, the, the English people have voted for him. I'm not here going to get into the politics of France or England. I'm just saying we have an outcome. I think it's really good. And I'm actually looking to the future. And um, I wouldn't like them coming on our party or the next party here. Um, and my, my, my view is, um, is, is clear cut. He had a strong mandate and I think he overworked it completely. And he probably overstated the strength of his mandate. But from an Irish perspective, which I'm looking at, he did not do any good for Irish relationships at all. And I think it'll be good that we have an opportunity, um, I think, to reset the relationships back yeah. the way they were before he came to power. And Kathleen, I'm sure you agree with that. Do you think this is a sort of opportunity now to try and resolve this sort of impasse over the protocol in particular? Uh, definitely. I think as well, he, he strikes me as just incredibly arrogant in, in his approach, that speech. I mean, to think you you get involved in politics and that's how you end up leaving. It just, it seems to me to be totally out of touch with people um, altogether. But I think when you look at the situation with the Northern Ireland Protocol and how he was willing to jeopardise, you know, an international peace agreement and, you know, that really was a very, very serious matter. He's obviously going now, but I mean, as there's still a question mark, is he going now, is he going in the autumn? But he's definitely on the way out and, and hopefully we will have somebody that will change. We, we had an election two months ago in the north. We need to get the executive up and running. We need to see the institutions back up and running and hopefully we will get somebody that will take that seriously and realise, you know, there was a democratic outcome to that election in the north and the, the, the institutions need to get back up and running. That's what ordinary people want to see, particularly, I would say, in this country, you know, I can't see anybody crying over him, but they do want to see, you know, the situation in the North progress as it has been for the last number of years. And okay. we don't want to see that going backwards in any way, shape or form. I do want to go to Peter Cardwell, who's a political editor and presenter on talk radio and a former special advisor to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland a couple of years ago, James Brokenshire. You're very welcome to the uh, programme, Peter. Boris Johnson began and ended his time um, in um, Downing Street with stalemate at Stormont. What's his legacy in Northern Ireland? I don't think it's a particularly good one. I don't think that people like the Northern Ireland uh, protocol arrangements that are there. Certainly, well, some people do like the arrangements, but the row over this has been very, very difficult. And I think that even those who are for the arrangements at the moment need to remember that in October, uh, there are further and faster arrangements happening, and that is going to be very, very difficult. In terms of relations in Northern Ireland, I, I think it's I think he undid a lot of the good work that had been done under Theresa May. Uh, maybe I would say that. 
but it is he certainly was not popular in Northern Ireland, and I think it was right that he went for all sorts of reasons. But I hope that under Shailesh Vara, the new Northern Ireland Secretary, uh, that there will be better relations, and then when the new leader comes in, whether that's in the autumn or sooner, that there will be a good uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who understands that there are so many issues that need to be outworked in regard to Brexit. We need to get Stormont up and running, as your Sinn Féin guest correctly said. And I think there's a, a huge job of work to do in terms of what uh, the UK government's relationship with Northern Ireland is. We understand that Simon Coveney has, in fact, already spoken to the new Northern Ireland Secretary. But out of the possible replacements for Boris Johnson, who do you think would be best uh, placed to sort of serve the protocol and serve the people of Northern Ireland? Rishi Sunak. Um, I actually uh, introduced Rishi to uh, your ambassador, Adrian O'Neill, in the Irish Embassy in London recently. Uh, there was an event that I was at, and uh, I know that the two men have spoken before, but it was good for them to speak. It's a real shame that Ambassador O'Neill is retiring, although he has worked very, very hard, has done a brilliant job. Uh, both in London over the past five years and as an official at the Department of Foreign Affairs, and I consider him a friend. Uh, he has done a great job, and I think that Rishi Sunak recognises that. I think Rishi Sunak would be an excellent Prime Minister, and he would realise that there is a there is a task ahead, there is a, a task at scale that needs to be done to reset relations between our two great countries, the United Kingdom and Ireland. And I think that it's a real shame that they are at probably their lowest ebb that they have been for probably about 25 years. Uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, Boris Johnson's former right-hand man, tweeted, as he does, uh, that he will create carnage if he is allowed to remain as Prime Minister till you know, September or October. What do you make of the decision to allow him to remain in that position? Well, it's actually a conventional decision. It has happened with firm, for the former Prime Ministers. The fact is that... Uh, Boris Johnson really does not have any authority. He has no power. I know at Cabinet today, I was speaking to two Cabinet ministers this evening at an event, and they said that around the Cabinet table today, there was agreement that not very much can be done in terms of the next few months. He is a caretaker of Prime Minister. He shouldn't be introducing new policies or doing anything massively different or uh, strange or, or, or in any way a huge thing or huge amount of money being spent. So I think the next leader needs to set out, whoever that is, and Tom Tugendhat, who's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, has this evening said that he will run. I think he'd be a good candidate, but I don't think he's going to make the final two. And he, perhaps a cabinet post after that. But he, uh, I think in this contest, what we need to do, uh, what the Conservative Party need to do as a party is work out what it's for. What, okay. With Boris Johnson, he, he certainly said, get Brexit done, he did that, but it's what happened after that that wasn't great. All right, we'll leave it there. Peter Cardwell, uh, thank you for your time. I just want to go back to my panel. Sean Fleming, is Rishi Sunak the person that you know, the Irish government wants to do business with and you know, um, restart Anglo-Irish relationships? We'll work constructively whoever comes out of the process and we won't interfere one way or the other. Well, you probably thought turn. that with Boris Johnson at one stage. I'm sure you would have said that three years ago. Yeah. We worked constructively <clears throat> and then you couldn't. Yeah, exactly. And he took an approach that was very unique and we haven't seen before and we hope we don't see it again, this unilateral approach without due regard to international agreements. And I think um, I, I'd be shocked if we were back in that territory again. I think they know it's not good for the reputation of the UK. They're meeting it when they speak to Americans and several other EU countries that you can't just tear up an international agreement. All right. Um, Michael, he did uh, mention there that, you know, Theresa May did stay on, didn't she, for two months after she resigned. But it does feel a little bit different this time because 
there's got to be an absolute breakdown of trust around that cabinet table. I mean, there was a farcical situation I saw with um, one of his new cabinet uh, ministers who was out in the Channel 4 News yesterday saying he has a spectacular lack of judgment and he has to go. And today he's sitting around the cabinet table. Yeah, uh, he's, he's going because of his own ineptitude. Uh, he's no relationship with the truth. Uh, it's his personality that uh, eventually caused his downfall. Where with me, it was, uh, you know, it was Europe, it was electoral, becoming electoral liability and all that. The same with Thatcher and other uh, prime ministers. So from that point of view, the prospect of his sitting around the cabinet table with ministers who have no confidence in him, most of whom have no confidence in him, until October is... Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty horrifying in ways. Now, it depends on what happens within the 1922 uh, group, and we'll know that next week. But uh, I wouldn't trust him. You wouldn't. See him for the summer in number... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Uh, 10 Downing Street. Well, would you trust him to go, Fiona? Like, there isn't a very clear exit strategy at this point. I know it's all, you know, happened within the last 24 hours. But there are some who question whether he will go and go yeah, easily. Look, we don't know what stunts he might pull in the intervening period. I, I, I disagree on the, the, the notion that people can't sit down and do business. I mean, the leader of Fine Gael, Linda Kenny, uh, now later went on the 6-1 News um, about 14 years ago and said that he didn't believe that Linda Kenny was the person to lead the country. Uh, you know, he was quite strong in that. He went back in the front bench the following week and he served as a minister under him for five years. So I think, you know, politicians have a great ability to, to park those personal views and get and yeah, realise that's I politics. I think the thing, Fionn, is the reason they have no confidence in him, that he's incapable of telling the truth, for instance. That's one, of, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> they know uh, that all but that. the thing is... In, 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 in Fine Gael and in the Kenny's time and Leo Varadkar's time, it was his capacity to lead the party and, more importantly, to win the next general election. Yeah, there but is a, there but is an, an incapability though, of telling the truth is almost something that we've come to expect. 
from most modern politicians at the moment. Yeah, but this is not fair. That's a No, it is. I'm looking at you in a one-to-one. That's not a valid comment about me. No, I'm not talking about you. That's okay. I'm talking about... When you look at the likes of Trump and you look at the likes of Johnson, right? You're taking the extremes now, Ian. That's the problem. No, but the thing is, they had the two most important... No, absolutely. And a lot of my friends work in politics. I'm not having a pop, a cheap pop of politicians. What I'm saying is that the general public attitude towards politicians at the moment is that we're not really surprised when they lie. When people voted for Johnson, when they got behind him, they knew, a bit like Trump, and it's, it's, there's a very lazy and easy comparison to make between the two, but you weren't voting for your parish priest or your, or your spiritual pastor. You were voting for somebody who was going to get the job done and you were holding well, you your... And you, and you, were holding, and you, were holding, you were holding your nose. Look, I don't, like, I don't care. If I have a doctor... I don't care what their bedside manner is like. I don't care about their integrity. I just want to make sure that they can do the job. Uh, Kathleen. It, it would be helpful if they were truthful to you. I do think that you need to have... I do think you need to have integrity to be in politics. And that was one of the things that struck me. Not only does he seem very arrogant, but I think he really lacks all integrity. And even just the embarrassment for his own party, the way he's, like, you know, just kind of very really slowly... Uh, backing out, you know, he just hasn't even done the right and honourable thing, come out, say he's going, you know, give a proper timeline. It's all sort of kind of smoke and mirrors with him. So I don't I don't agree with I don't agree with the statement either that people have have come to accept or expect that, you know, there's a lack of integrity or a lack of honesty with politicians. But I do think personalities like Johnson and Trump, as he was mentioned, they do damage uh, politics and the whole political scene and it's part of the reason I feel as well sometimes you don't get engagement maybe from younger people in certain sections of society because it's like this oh look we've so expected it. and when yeah. people like I, you know when, when you do something and you're wrong I think you have to be able to come out and say that stand over it and, and step down depending on what the situation is. And I think that has been has been lost when okay. you see personalities like that. I mean, how many okay, different so allegations and he's still hanging in there. Back in here. Do, uh, his, his, his legacy, just... I just want to wonder what yeah. Boris's legacy is going to, to be. Did he get Brexit done? And how do you think, ultimately, will he be remembered here in Ireland? Well, he'll be remembered here in Ireland as, as the person who jeopardised our, our long um, yeah. sought-after yeah. peace process. And that's the danger now is that his legacy still continues there. He will continue to advance that notion that the Northern Ireland Protocol should be should be broken up. We're already seeing today that some of the hardline Brexiteers are saying they will want to know where individual candidates for the leadership stand on issues like Northern Ireland. For example, the, the former Northern Ireland Secretary, Theresa Villiers, she's one of the worst people to hold that office ever in the history of the state. But she was saying today, I want to know. So you're going to have a block within the Conservatives who are, who are going to be ensuring that whoever is, is making it into that final two is going to be, have to be crystal clear on where they stand on Brexit. All right, look, we're going to have to leave uh, that topic there for now. But my panel is staying with me because after the break, there's coalition discontent and a potential vote of no confidence. Stay with us. back, my panel of Michael O'Regan, Ian O'Doherty, Minister Sean Fleming, uh, Kathleen Funchen TD and Fiona Sheehan are still with us. And I'm going to start with you, uh, Fiona, and what we're hearing about this meeting of a group of Fianna Foyle backbenchers last night about 
29 of them, was it? Why were they meeting? Who met? What was it all about? The, the existential identity crisis within Fianna Fáil goes on. Sean actually wrote a very good report, very fair and impartial, uh, about the last general election within Fianna Fáil. And, and part of the, the thing that, that he identified within that was a lack of identity amongst the voters of what exactly the party stood for, what were their, what, what was their raison d'etre uh, these days. And now the, the party went into government, so most people would say, well, right, you, you show what you're about now in government, but within the party there still seems to be a view that they need to be uh, generating additional policies to put into their manifesto in the next general election because they're not in the programme for government and therefore they need to uh, come up with something extra. So there was talk of some policy groups on, on foot of Sean's um, report. They've, they've been seen to be kind of, you know, be too much control with the party leadership and, and the spin doctors and so on and so forth. So a group of backbenchers have, have come together in order to discuss policy. And there's two, uh, I suppose, varying uh, outcomes out of that. One is people who are of the view, yeah, look, this is a good uh, way to, to talk about uh, policy within the party, how to develop an identity, and there are others who see it as a means to gripe against the leadership, brackets, Michal Martin slash the other ministers at the top table. OK, Sean, were you aware of this meeting? Were you invited to this meeting? The meeting that happened yesterday um, was for the Fianna Fáil backbencher and the senator, so it was actually good. Um, I think it was good that shows the hunger within the Fianna Fáil party <laughs> to do better. Were you invited to No, it? I said um, the ministers weren't invited to the meeting. Some of us had heard about the meeting. We spoke to our colleagues afterwards. And in relation to Finans, it was, I'm told by people there, it was really about pushing Fianna Fáil's and Fianna Fáil's identity and Fianna Fáil policy. And the issue of the leadership uh, didn't come into play at all. Well, um, I, I read that it was the elephant in the room. Well, well, I don't know because it wasn't there, but I am clear in what the, my colleagues who were at the meeting said. And at our parliamentary party meetings, there's a strong demand for Fianna Fáil policies because when you're in a three-party government, as part of a government, but we have to have our separate identity. And I'm pleased that these discussions are actually happening. OK, I'm and just, says I'm the just in, from. interested, because uh, you mentioned the parliamentary party yeah. meeting, which was on yesterday as well. So... Yeah. Why not just bring up the issues there? Why meet in advance of it? Are they not heard at the parliamentary yeah, party we, meetings? What, what, what happens at the weekly parliamentary party meetings is there's a lot of legislation going through the doll. There may even be a vote of confidence next week. So the parliamentary party happens during the week and we have to discuss the legislation going through the doll, the opposition proposals, okay. the amendments, and we don't get enough of time out sometimes to have a meeting away from the Dáil okay, just to discuss the broader issues. The Irish Examiner has a, a story a breaking this evening. Um, that one of the Fianna Fáil sec uh, senators who was in attendance at that meeting, and I'm not going to say the word because I have family watching, F Sinn Féin and F Fine Gael is a direct quote apparently of what they said. It's hardly indicative of a real happy, healthy, functioning coalition, is it? Well, uh, actually the coalition is functioning very well from that point they're of view. They're not happy but they function. Yeah, they're, they're functioning very well um, and from the government point of view. But what that's clear says to me, Leave aside the particular vocabulary and words used. It shows Fianna Fáil has to look after Fianna Fáil and our policies. And I'm delighted to see... And do you, feel, do you, do you accept that there's people within Fianna Fáil who feel that's not happening? That Fine Gael are taking a swipe at Fianna Fáil and, and you're not retorting, you're not managing your identity, well, you're not managing your backbenchers? Well, well as Fianna already said, I pointed this out a year ago in the report I wrote as a result of the lack 
the last general election. We need to be clearer on our identity amongst their own, amongst their supporters and amongst the electorate. And this is part of an effort to get there. I've been very surprised at how muted a lot of the Fianna Fáil uh, TDs have been. I mean, there, there was one thing that all of us, when we were growing up, whether you liked Fianna Fáil, if you didn't like them, you hated them because they were the biggest game in town. Um, but we all knew that they were sort of ruthlessly efficient. They had the best party machine that, they, you know, and that just seems to have gone. They, I, I don't know. The Fianna Fáil that I didn't like when I was a kid, I knew what they represented and I didn't like. Um, I don't know what Fianna Fáil represents now to like or dislike. Oh, but like it's a different s- Ireland, you see. It's a different electorate. I mean, the days... Ian is talking about a time when Fianna Fáil could say, you know, we'll restore the language, we'll unite the country, and look on a good day, we might drain the Shannon. That's all gone. The, we're, it's a different electorate, more sophisticated electorate, a better educated electorate, thanks mainly <laughs> to a great <laughs> Fianna Fáil minister called Dunne Comelli. So there is an identity problem, but some of the TDs at that meeting were privately saying, look, this is not an issue uh, uh, with the leadership. Now, the leadership will change a little at the, in December uh, when Michal Martin becomes Tánish, Leo Ratker becomes Taoiseach, and some of those TDs at that meeting, some of them no doubt friends of Sean, will be wondering, will they get promoted in the reshuffle? Uh, I just want to move on because I do want to mention the vote of no confidence um, that uh, Sinn Féin is going to put down. I think that is going to go ahead, isn't it? Well, the, the final decision is going to be made tomorrow. Um, I understand tomorrow morning, but um, like, I do think that there really is such anger out there from people. Um, there's so many issues over the last two years of this government um, of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens. So what exactly of housing, are Sinn Féin, of... I suppose, hoping to achieve with this motion of no confidence next week? Well, it's to highlight all of the failures that we've seen over the last two years with the highest cost of living in Europe. Um, we launched our childcare document today. We've one of the highest childcare fees in the OECD. There is so many issues in relation to housing. There's over a million people waiting on hospital waiting lists. There is and I think the Mary average rent. Also said today we want to put it up to the independents who support the government. Isn't that part of the reason? Well, I think to be honest, the, the real key thing is the anger that's out there, and people really are struggling. And I, sometimes I feel that you know we say that in various media programs, and you forget that behind that there genuinely is real individuals and families coming into our offices, and they must be coming into the the government TDs offices too. That can't actually pay for various bills, whether that's back to school costs now, whether it's electricity, fuel, all all of the various things. And people are really, really angry. They don't see any progress. The government has been in for two full years. And all we're seeing... Just 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 in relation to this government, you know, we had the difficult Brexit at the beginning and we were talking about it earlier at the protocol. We've dealt with COVID as best as any country could in terms of vaccination and everything else. Now we have the war in Ukraine and we're working with it. And now, yes, we have a serious inflation issue, cost of living issue. That's why we're bringing the budget forward. That's why we give the extra money for back to school. So families will have that in their hands in the next couple of weeks to pay for the extra Uh, school costs. Obviously, the summer recess is next week um, and and the government's gone until September. Is it the right time to do this, do you think, Fiona? Does it highlight sort of the failures of the last two years or is it going to just be an opportunity for Michael Martin to stand up and say, well, these are our successes? Yeah. uh, Or what's achieved? Assuming that the government parties can actually muster their their troops and get the message presented in some sort of coherent fashion, then there is an opportunity for them. But they don't really seem to be capable of doing that uh, quite a bit uh, recently. You've you've got different factions. And when you've got one of the parties in government basically saying, we're not going to be judged by the voters and how we perform on our major portfolios of 
housing, health and education. They're actually going to look at a shiny new portfolio at the next general election and go, here's a bunch of great promises, and that's what's going to win them vote. It's not, it's not very much connected with how people think. All right, look, if we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Sean, uh, Kathleen and to Fiona. Michael and Ian will be staying with us and after the break, our week in review. Now for our week in review, Michael O'Regan, Ian O'Doherty are still with me and we are also joined by Sarah Jane Tobin, content editor and journalist with evoke.ie. You're very welcome to Thank the uh, panel. Sarah, I'm going to start with you uh, because I want to look at that ESRI reports. Yeah. This week, looking at home ownership uh, figures yeah. in Ireland, they were pretty star. I don't think we really, I don't think anybody was quite surprised by it, to be fair. Um, but some of the statistics were quite quite vast. Like uh, They said that in 2004, um, in the age group 25 to 34, it was around 60% of people were homeowners. Now that's gone down to 27%. And I don't think anybody here will be expecting that to change uh, in a good way anytime soon. Um, because that's a the radical prices, change, though, in less enormous. than 20 years, isn't it's it? It's absolutely enormous. And I don't think, like, I, I genuinely don't think a lot of people in their 20s and 30s now have much hope of actually getting on the property ladder, particularly if they're single. Um, and then you have the problem as well that, you know, people who are in relationships who are separating and stuff like that in the home, between the two of them, they can't move out. It's 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 just it's ter it's a really awful position for an awful lot of people to be in. And looking at long term renting, which is obviously just going to make it, uh, you know, poverty in the over sixty fives a lot a lot more likely yeah. uh, down the line because they're not going to be homeowners. They're going to be finishing up work. They're going to have to still pay rent. You know, it's, and it just is simply it's never ending. Not going to work, uh, Michael. That was one of the figures that did jump out at me. Um, one in five, twenty percent of people in this country right now, aged between forty-five and fifty-four, have little prospect of ever owning a home. Now, if you're somebody who's going to be living in one of the capital cities and paying the high rents that we're looking at now, and nobody expects them to fall dramatically, your pension is just simply not going to match those rates. It's a societal time bomb. And the implications are horrendous. To have a whole coterie of people in rented accommodation relying on the state pension or a modest occupational pension and unable to keep up with rents at their age when, you know, all kinds of issues like health issues and that surface. And uh, it's a ticking time bomb. It's, it's, it's a dreadful indictment of the failure of successive governments to see this coming. The days when you could aspire to a mortgage a reasonable mortgage, an expensive mortgage, but a mortgage nevertheless in a house that you paid off over 20 years or whatever and could rely on a reasonable standard of living as an old, as a pensioner, those days are disappearing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Ultimately, Ian, we are going to find ourselves in a position where we have a number of people who are retired, who are renting, who can't afford the, to cover their rents. We can't just evict those people. They can't become homeless. So the government is going to have to subsidise. Well, I think you might find that. I think I, I think you might find that some here. of the landlords will quite happily evict them. Um, and I don't want to sound like the harbinger of doom here, but I mean, I'll be honest. We're staring down the barrel of a very, very scary gun mm. that's going to hit us in about twenty years' time. Um, and but these are mistakes that were needless. These were mistakes that were completely needless. And we now have a situation where in one of the richest countries in the world, which we still are for all of our problems, um, the amount of people who don't have their own home, right? So you're talking about displaced people in their own country because of successive failures 
on all sides of various different governments. But to put things into perspective, and it was something that really incensed me, um, only last night, I was out walking my dogs and I met two young American tourists in the estate. They were looking for the, the address of, where, of an Airbnb place that they were staying in. That Airbnb place had, up until just before lockdown, been where my friend, his wife and their kid lived. And then the landlord put up the rent to a prohibitive price and they had to move out. Right. So now it's just going to tourists. So, and again, Michael will know this is that one of the one of the foundational policies of, of sort of Irish independence was was going after landlords, and you know the fixity of tenure and all that. And we since the county tiger, we just become landlords, mm -hmm. and we're basically we are screwing ourselves. It's not just the foreign vulture funds. It's Irish people. And Irish people still ultimately, Sarah, want to own their own home. Yeah, like today, now the government, they've launched their uh, first home scheme today, which is 400 million that's been put aside now that's going to help people who are looking to buy their first home. And these include people who are in split up relationships or, you know, first time buyers or whatever. But at the same time, then Sinn Féin have come out and said, well, they're actually just propping up the, the landlords and pushing up the house prices even further by, you know, the, the scheme, and I think it's... I think the SRA and the Central Bank have also yeah. you know, issued concerns about that particular scheme. I just want to move on, SR Jane, because we had heard about all the issues at um, Dublin airports and we knew that from this week the army were put on standby. Yes. Uh, Dalton Phillips was on this programme this week um, and he said no, they were not going to be called. But there are still real issues, perhaps not with security, but with baggage at Dublin yeah. airport. We're looking at footage, I think, from the airport taken in the last couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty, um, it's it's very frustrating. You can only imagine what it's like to arrive back in Dublin or arrive to Dublin if you're here on holidays and not have your bags, not have any answers. And Dublin Airport DAA say it's not their responsibility, it's the responsibility of the airline. The problem is basically they let go so many staff uh, during COVID and now a lot of staff members have COVID. They can't get them in, they can't replace the staff without doing security checks and new intensive security checks that have just been introduced in January this year. So they're, they're coming up against it on all fronts. Michael O'Leary, in fairness to him, spotted this a long time ago and he was calling for the army to be brought in a long time ago. And Ryanair are pretty much the only major airline that haven't been um, seriously affected by these staff shortages as yet. Ian, I know you came through the airport, didn't you? And I know you flew into Manchester. Manchester was pretty bad too, but you saw the baggage <laughs> firsthand, the baggage situation. In, in, in my airport. ongoing series of making terribly bad decisions, I've uh, found myself <laughs> uh, in, in, twice in the last few weeks flying out of Dublin into Manchester and then uh, doing the return journey. And trust me, folks, don't do it unless you really have to do it. Don't do it. And I was lucky because one, one hint is get the fast track pass. Get the fast track pass going out of Dublin, right? It's an extra tenner or whatever. Let's do it. Um, and also because I was only gone over to a couple of matches, I just I was able to yeah, just take your have hand a luggage with you. I if just, you can. It was just a rucksack. But the thing that really struck me was last Sunday when I came back, there were just suitcases and baggage in the middle of the concourse. And I was just saying to Michael before we came on air, it's like if you wanted to rob yourself a new suitcase, head out to Dublin Airport because they're all just lying there. Yeah, yeah. We're not advocating that, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. Thank you, Ian. Uh, moving on, uh, Michael, to another you know major launch, major story this week. Metrolink, it's finally going to happen. Are you confident? No. <laughs> this is bizarre. This thing has been announced so many times. And, of course, it's good news. You know, it looks good. You have ministers and they're saying uh, the latest uh, date for... Uh, for have it up and running is 2027. Now, in the past, uh, uh, sorry, it's not. It's the no, early. No, I think it was the early, early 2030s. 2030s. Yeah. The original one. 
was 2027. Uh, this was when it was announced as far back as 2018. They said, look, 2027, uh, cost of 23 billion. I never trust governments, Kira, who, are, who uh, uh, announce, make big announcements that stretch beyond the period they will be in government. I just don't trust it. Because they can't be held responsible. They can't be held responsible and sufficiently down the road for people to either forget or to be told. I don't think we're going to see this in our lifetime. I I, I genuinely don't. I don't Um, know how long you lads are giving yourselves. (laughs) Well, actually, you know, I I have a rather dodgy lifestyle, so that could be up until next week. (laughs) You may. You know. No, but I I, I, I just. We've we've seen these announcements so often. Yeah. That it's just white noise bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Um, Sarah it's a Jane, bit like how... draining the Shannon back in the 50s. Announced it, promised it every general election. And still, they still have to still move waiting. in. And drain the <laughs> um, a, a bit of, I suppose, sport and, and celebrity this week down at Adair Manor. Uh, did you yes. follow the pro am? Listen, I don't watch golf. Um, I mean, but I, I did. I did. This was golf, was it? <laughs> no, it was. It was a nice spectacle. Actually, it was something really nice to kind of look at throughout the week. There we have Niall Hoare and Bill Murray. Jamie Dornan, what a babe Jamie Dornan is. I think everyone was loving watching all the footage of just the celebrities having such a good time down in Limerick and um, all the all the fans hanging around and stuff like that. I think um, one I'm of the... to see Tiger Woods. Yeah, well, that was, I was just going to say, one of them... That was one of my favourite photos, actually, of the week, was, I don't know if you saw Tiger Woods, uh, a woman got hit by a ball. Yeah. And uh, he came to her aid, and it was, you know, it was just really nice to kind of see the normal side to him and stuff like that. But I think, um, yeah, I think it kind of opens it up to people who aren't necessarily like me, who wouldn't necessarily follow the golf day in, day out. It kind of makes it a little bit more uh, relatable and a little bit more touchable, I suppose. Uh, and just before we go, uh, Sarah, um, we did talk about the airport, Ian, you're saying don't even bother going through it. You mightn't have to go through the airport. We mightn't yes. have to go on holidays. It sounds like the summer's coming this Finally, weekend. yes. Well, according Aaron, to... Better be telling us the truth. That's it. According to Matt Aaron, um, the jet stream is coming up over Ireland. Apparently, for so long now, it wasn't uh, northern enough to, to kind of bring us the hot weather. But apparently, ladies and gentlemen, 24 degrees on Sunday uh, in Leinster and Munster. That's it. I, I wrote a piece of... Sunday to win a Northern <laughs> semi-final. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago in the Indo saying, summer's here, it's brilliant, I'm going to get the barbecue out. And it lashed for the entire week afterwards <laughs> well, and we... people were just blaming oh, me right. for hexing <laughs> the whole Keep thing. the barbecue in the shed then, Ian. We're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to all of our panel. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can find us on Instagram tonight at the MTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.